John 14, so uh, at our main campus, we're doing a series through uh, what is called the Upper Room Discourse. That is, uh, Jesus, uh, the night before he dies, he gathers his disciples in an upper room and um, has his last word with them. And, uh, and it's, ex- it's an extended, if you just devotionally, there's nothing richer than this. It's uh, John 13 through 17, and you can just read his last words to his disciples before he's to be betrayed, arrested, condemned, crucified. Um, and so we're going through that at our main campus. And, and when um, I was asked to preach, uh, I, I decided to pull one of those. Um, I know some of you kind of uh, double dip main campus and uh, downtown. Um, maybe some of you cheat and do a little podcasting. So there's a chance you've heard this before. If if so, I'm sorry, it's your fault. And you should be listening to only Marshall and Marshall alone. But uh, but I chose this one from John 14. I asked I asked. Uh, Justin, I've been who I was getting. Marshall's been on vacation, and I was asking Justin, "Well, what do you want me to preach on?" And he said this, and I don't know if this resonates with you, but he said, "You know, I'd love for you to preach a sermon on the topic of shame." And I said, "That's a that's a good good topic. Um, um, you don't get asked that very often. Preach on shame." And I thought of this passage, um, John fourteen one through four. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. The word of the Lord. Our Lord, we gather together hungry for your word confident in the power of your word. Um, We gather together as needy people, confident that you have all that we need. We gather together as um, shameful and uh, sinful people, confident that you have the grace that we need. We gather together as an insecure people, confident that you have the security that we need. Lord, we have come hungry and believing that all we need is found in you. Show yourself as sufficient. Show yourself as the God who loves us, the God who invites us, the God who takes away all our shame, the God that gives us a place where we belong. In Jesus' name, amen. Megan, I think I asked you for water, and I don't know if I... Oh, you... Thank you. I just need a quick sip. Thanks. All right, I want to share a story that was completely relevant when I preached this sermon, but is not relevant now, um, because March Madness was going on when I preached it, and March Madness is not going on anymore. Um, But alas, we'll just roll with it, okay? Okay. it is a story that came out of March Madness about a guy named Danny. Uh, Danny is a big University of Virginia fan, and back in 2014, uh, Virginia was playing Duke in the uh, ACC championship game, and Danny had a crazy idea. Uh, what if, just before tip-off, he walked down the aisle confidently acting like he just belonged on the court and see if he could pull it off? Well, sure enough, he did. 
He just starts walking down the aisle, walked past the security guard, gave him a little what's up nod, like he owns the place, kept on going, kept on going. And sure enough, uh, Danny spent the whole game down on the court. Um, there are shots on TV that you can see of Danny sitting um, behind the bench, right behind the bench, like uh, one of the trainers. Um, at one time on the end of the bench, like one of the assistant coaches. Um, in the huddle, one time they huddled up and Danny's in the huddle with Virginia. Um, Virginia actually beat Duke, blessed be the name of the Lord, and confetti is falling from the arena and Danny is woohooing in the confetti with one of the championship shirts on and one of the hats on. Um, there's a picture with Danny and the championship trophy. And uh, my favorite is he jumped in the line after the game and shook the Duke player's hand. And there's a picture of him and Coach K shaking hands saying, good game. True story. You can go look it up. Crazy story. But in many ways, um, in many ways, I think we fear it might be our story. Do you, do you feel like an imposter? Um, a phony, someone who is good at pretending the Christian thing, but deep down you wonder if you actually belong? Like, have you kind of just weaseled your way into this? You fooled everyone, perhaps even fooled yourself, but you fear the truth that you cannot fool God? Is that a good way to think about you and your Christianity? I fooled other people. I think I might have even fooled myself, but I fear I can't fool God. And eventually you will be found out. Eventually you'll be exposed to the fraud that you are. And eventually you'll be kicked out. At some level, I believe we all struggle with this. No, I'll take that back. At some level, I know we all struggle with this. Because of how we were created, all of us deep down have this desperate need to belong. That, that is, without a doubt, one of the most fundamental desires of the human heart, to belong. And yet because of the fall, all of us have this sinking suspicion that we do not belong. In fact, right after the fall in Genesis 3, the, the first act was to hide in shame because they knew they no longer belonged. When our pastors today, Jesus is going to assure our troubled hearts, our shameful hearts, these hearts with these deep suspicions of our belongings, that we actually do belong. So much so that we belong as a permanent resident in the house of God. Not because we have faked our way in, but because He is our way in. Here's how I'm going to divide the text. We're going to look at the place and the promise. The place where you belong and the promise that you will get to where you belong. But let's, let's begin with the place. The place where every single person in this room belongs. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Now I'm jumping into, um, I'm jumping into the discourse here so you, you haven't heard what was before this. But this is, like I said, this is towards the end of the story and Jesus has already shattered their expectations of how this is going to go down. They had visions of messianic triumph and glory but Jesus speaks of suffering and betrayal and Peter's denial and most shockingly that he is going to have to leave them and they can't come with him. That's the last thing he told them before this. I've got to go and you're not going to be able to come. And so they're scared and they're hurt and they are bewildered and they are doubting and they are deeply troubled. And Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Instead, Jesus says, trust in God. Now they would be familiar with that command. It's all over the Bible and you are familiar 
with that command. Trust in God. Trust in God. But Jesus is going to add a detail and substance to the familiar, perhaps for the disciples and perhaps for you, routine and bland trust in God command. They know they should trust in God. You know you should trust in God. Yeah, 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 trust in God. But what does that even mean? How do I trust? Why should I trust? What am I trusting in? These are the true cries of our anxieties. Well, Jesus does something incredibly profound that's easy to miss. He says, trust in God. Trust also in me. Without hesitation, without qualification, Jesus takes that enormous command that's all over scripture trust in God trust in God nobody would ever say trust in God oh and trust in me but that's exactly what he does here he takes this enormous command and without hesitation or qualification he invites us to trust him in the same way we are to trust God that's not to be viewed as a competing trust as if you are trusting in two, but is a Trinitarian trust. You are trusting in God by trusting in Jesus, that Jesus is the fullest answer to what it means to trust God. And he defends that in what appears to be a strange way. So the audacious claim that in many ways the rest of the discourse is him claiming why trusting, trusting God, trust also in me, is him defending that. But the first way he defends it is at first very strange. He says this, in my father's house are many rooms. Now, this is the introduction to one of the most famous promises in Scripture. You've probably heard it before, even if you are not a follower of Jesus and are um, just investigating Christianity and, and not very familiar with the Bible. You probably have even heard this before. Um, it's made it out into uh, secular society. It's, it's become one of those passages. In my father's house are many rooms. But it's also one of the most misunderstood passages, especially because a guy named William Tyndale translated the word room as mansions at one point. And then that has been kind of immortalized in hymnody with the idea of mansions in the sky and so forth. So then the meaning of the promise got turned into this idea of lavishness that's awaiting all of us, which isn't the point at all. The Greek word translated here as room is fine, but probably better translated as dwelling place, meaning in my father's house are many dwelling places. So get all of those of you who, uh, like me, grew up in the Baptist church, get all the mansions in the sky, sweet by and by ideas out of your mind. That's not what this is. Instead, what does Jesus mean by my father's house has many rooms? Well, he's already told us in the Gospels what he means. We already have used this word, or John has already used this word, when talking about the temple. The temple of God was known to Jews as the house of God. My father's house is the temple, the residence of God on earth. That's in the Old Testament. The residence of God was the temple. It was the white house of the kingdom of God, so to speak. But not just the temple, a specific part of the temple. The inner sanctum, the sacred holy of holies, is the place where God's presence dwelt. This dwelling place where only the high priest on one day of the year could enter this room. And to do so, it took many rituals of cleansing and sacrifices because this room literally um, housed God's holy presence. You can read it in Leviticus 16, but it is just a bloody mess trying to get this priest ready to enter into this room once a year. So a room which was the dwelling place of God within the house of God. 
All right, now back to our passage. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. Jesus offers His disciples a vision of a heavenly temple with not one central dwelling room, but a temple with many rooms of God's dwelling. Okay? Neat concept, but what has that to do with our troubled hearts? What does the news of many dwelling places have to do with let not your heart be troubled? Well, it isn't just that the Father's house has many dwelling places. It's that one of those dwelling places belongs to you. Let's move from the place to the promise that we will get there. This is where I want to spend most of our time. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now the immediate question here is, when did Jesus tell them I go to prepare a place for you? The answer on the surface, if you're reading the Gospel of John, you would say in one sense, never. He hasn't said that yet. But in another sense, um, it, is, it is that he has been saying it um, the whole time. The truer answer is that he's been telling them all along. When the disciples, when Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to have to suffer and go away, that is him telling them that he has to go prepare a place for them. To quote Don Carson on this verse, it is the going itself via the cross and resurrection and ascension that prepares a place for his own. They don't want him to go. They're troubled that he's going. They don't want him to suffer and to die. They don't want him to ascend and leave them behind. But Jesus' point is that the only way for me to prepare a place for you is this way. The, the ritual from Leviticus 16. That is not meaningless symbolism. Only one high priest entering the holy of holy dwelling place once a year, only after cleansings, and special garments and blood sacrifices. And Jewish, Jewish tradition tells us that they would actually tie a rope around the priest as he went behind the curtain into that dwelling place of God because they, they knew if he fell dead in the presence of the holiness of God, they could drag him out so anybody else didn't have to go in there and die too. That's not empty ritual. That's how serious this business is. It is Scary. This room is scary that houses the presence of God because sinful man cannot stand in the presence of God. None can stand in the midst of God's holiness. None can endure a glimpse of God's glory. No one, not a single sinner, can occupy the presence of God and live to tell of it. Because the presence of the thrice holy God will rightly and justly induce for us the worst experience the deepest of shame and indeed eternal death. You don't want this room is the point I'm trying to make. You don't want this room in the house of God because this room houses your greatest fear, the holiness of God. And yet at the same time, we do want this room. We need this room. Every single one of us is deeply longing for this room, for this room also is the end of longing. Our longings which find our rest in the presence of God. So we were made for the presence of God, and yet because of the, our sin, the presence of God has become our greatest fear. We need this room. We have to have this room. But because of our sin, this, great, this room has become our greatest nightmare. The room is where we ultimately belong, and yet we dare not enter this room. 
That is our greatest dilemma. But Jesus sees no dilemma in this passage, does he? Here he is declaring to his followers that they will have what they need. They will be where they belong. They will inherit their own room in his father's house. And he says it as a promise, not a threat. That is literally an impossible promise. He's saying, you've got a room in the house of God. You've got an inner sanctum with the presence of God waiting for you. And he says that as if that's not scary, as if that's a promise. Well, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. I know you don't want me to go, but I have to go to prepare a place for you, to make your room in my Father's house possible. And so shortly after this conversation, Jesus goes, he is betrayed, he's arrested, he's condemned, he's tortured, he's ultimately crucified, not for his sins, but for my sins. As a substitute, Jesus bears the very sins that make a room in God's house an impossibility for sinners. And so definitive and sufficient is his sacrifice that when he breathes his last breath, immediately the curtain temple that guards the Holy of Holies, that inner sanctum room is torn from top to bottom because access into the presence of God is now wide open. And you, sinner, are invited back into the place where you truly belong. And then after his death, he rises... He ascends back to the Father's presence until all the rooms are prepared. Until all His children from across all the families of the earth come home to the household of God via the good news of His gospel. Until every tongue, tribe, and nation comes home to where they belong. To where their souls are longing for the presence of their God. And then He will return for the great ingathering of all of us into our eternal home. That's actually the greater promise here for us. Not just that he is going away that prepares to prepare a room, but that his return will fill the rooms. Verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may also be. You will be in his presence so that where I am, you get to be. Jesus is building an argument for us to trust his promise is what he's doing. And essentially it's this. If I did the hard work to prepare a place for you, which took my suffering, my death, resurrection, ascension, if I did the hard work to prepare a place for you, do you really think I'm not going to get you there? Do you really think I'm not going to come back and get you to that room? If I've made this room for you, you really think I'm not going to fill it? Do you really think that Jesus will go the way of the cross to make possible your room and then just let those rooms remain unoccupied? Curse the thought. Jesus did not die in vain. He will receive the reward of his suffering. And his reward is this. Where I am, you are. That's his reward. It's not just that you are longing for the presence of God. The presence of God is longing for you. Literally, Jesus is dying, or literally, Jesus has died to be with you. He wants you home even more than you want to be home. And so, beloved of God, you're coming home. Now, let's take that future promise and apply it to our current lives. The application for us is the original command of the passage. Remember, 
All of this is in support of this statement. Let not your hearts be troubled. So question, what's troubling you? What is troubling your hearts? And I wonder if that would trouble you as much if you actually believed that you actually belong. A full member of the household of God, so much so that you have your own room. I love Psalm 84 that we read as our Old Testament reading. And I, it, does, that, does that line not resonate with you where the psalmist says, better is one day in your course than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper at the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. And does that not resonate with you? Just let me be a doorkeeper. <laughs> Just let me hold the door and I'm fine. And he's saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> Thank you, thank you for the sentiment, but you have a room. You're not going to be a doorkeeper. You're not going to be holding the door in the household of God. You have a room in the household of God, a full member so much that you have your own room, not a couch to sleep on, not temporary guest quarters, not leased space that you're going to have to leave, a permanent room like my children have a room in their home, a permanent dwelling place in your heavenly Father's house. What does that future promise do to your present troubled hearts? So what's troubling you? Perhaps even talking about house, father's house, rooms and homes. Perhaps that strikes at your troubled hearts. I know it, I know it did and does for me. I grew up and house, my father's house wasn't the best of things. My house was at a very unsettled home. To this day, I, I grew up here in Lexington. If I drive by my house, I get... I, I get this kind of gnawing anxiety because of my childhood in that home and how there was no peace in that house. So perhaps even just talking about house and family and homes and rooms, maybe, maybe that troubles your heart. Your marriage is troubling you. Your parenting is troubling you. Your, your parents are troubling you. Your singleness is troubling you because you, a house, I'm, I'm just alone in an apartment. Perhaps even talk of house and home is the very source of your troubled heart. Well, I wonder if the promise of your eternal home will transform the troubles of your temporary home. At our conference this past year, our speaker told a story that's just a gripping story because, uh, because so many, I, I deal with this um, certainly at our main campus where uh, there are, there are um, there are, a lot, there are a lot of parents and grandparents at our main campus, and of course you're always dealing with wayward children. And um, so when I preached this sermon to them, I knew that there would be a lot of parents and grandparents listening who would say, you know what's troubling my heart? My child, who doesn't care one bit about what you're saying, who doesn't care about Jesus, who, wouldn't be, who doesn't care about this promise. That's what's troubling my heart, my wayward son. And Sandy Wilson, our speaker at the conference, tells the story about a dear saint in the Lord who, um, who was dying on her, uh, on her deathbed. And her son had rejected the gospel, and she had spent her entire life troubled by his rejection of Jesus. She prayed for him every day. She had wept for him countless times. And she's on her deathbed, and, uh, and, and her son comes to visit her. And she said to him, Sandy said, she said to him what I never thought a parent would say. She looked at him and she says, um, 
I've spent my life praying for you. I've spent my life crying for you. And perhaps he thought that she would give him one more plea. I'm about to die, so, you know, my last plea. You know what she said? I want you to know I'm leaving and I'm going to weep for you no more. I'm done worrying about you. I'm going home. I'm going home where I belong and it will be so good that all my troubles, yes, even my trouble as intimate as my child will be forgotten. I'm done weeping for you. I'm going where I belong. I wonder if present belonging could transform present family troubles. Perhaps you're troubled this evening by just difficult circumstances. Maybe the sickness of you or someone you love. I just got back from Memphis and visiting uh, someone I love in the ICU. Uh, maybe financial troubles. Maybe um, not knowing what you're going to do with your life. You can't figure this thing out. Stressing you out. Maybe an addiction that's ruining your life. Perhaps just a convergence of stress that you just don't know that you can bear much longer. Perhaps you can bear it. You've already broken. You're already broken and you find yourself in a dark season where you don't know what to do. Certainly we're all alert to that with, with, the, two, um, with the two famous suicides this past week. Um, maybe, maybe it's just this convergence of circumstances that has you just completely, when I say, what has your heart troubled, you, you kind of say, I don't know, where would you like for me to begin? Perhaps your troubled life is troubling you. Well, I wonder if the promise of an eternal home of perfect circumstances might transform these temporary difficult circumstances. It doesn't change your circumstances. It transforms your circumstances by placing your circumstances into proper perspective. Eternal hope never takes away our circumstances. It transforms, it transcends our circumstances by placing our circumstances in proper perspective. And the proper perspective is you have a home of perfect circumstances waiting. Perhaps you're troubled by the fear of the future. I think it's a big one for, for maybe this room. I, I thought of it for you all specifically. It's not the cancer. It's the fear of cancer diagnosis. It's not kids are struggling. It's fear of their future struggles. Like, am I raising these kids right and are they going to be crazy someday kind of fear. It's not finances that are, you're struggling with. It's fear of future financial ruin. Maybe today's a good day. But you look toward where you're heading, culture's declining, secularism rising, war could be imminent, markets could crash, tragedy may strike, and on and on and on. Our future fears go where, where the future troubles our present hearts. Well, this one's very easy to apply. You have no idea what the future holds except for one sure and certain thing, this passage. Chances are all of those anxieties that trouble your heart every single day Chances are they're never going to come to pass. But chances are certain that this will come to pass. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'm coming for you. Perhaps you ought not to fixate on what probably won't happen and start fixating on what certainly will happen. And this certainly will happen. And speaking of the future, I'd be remiss if I didn't challenge those whose future is not secure with this promise. I don't know what's troubling your heart, but I know what should ultimately trouble your heart, your death. Where do you stand with God and where are you heading when you die? I can't fix your life. Jesus is not the immediate fix to your life. I'm sorry if he's been presented that way. That is not true. 
In fact, in some ways, he's going to make your life harder. But he is the fix to your greatest trouble, not your life, but your death. You could go to bed tonight with the ultimate, my heart is no longer troubled, <laughs> with eternity resolved. So you see how this works. What has your heart troubled? No matter what it is, it will never trouble you there. So perhaps it should trouble you less here. Well, all of this will only happen if you truly believe, and this is where we come to that nagging shame that we all struggle with. All of this will only happen if you truly believe that you truly have a room in the Father's house and that Jesus truly is coming back to take you home where you truly belong. Like I said at the beginning, I don't think we actually think we belong. I could preach this, I've just preached this whole sermon. And I think we're still tempted to leave here and say, yeah, true for everybody but me. We feel like phonies. We feel like we're pretending, we're faking it. Soon to be found out and soon to be kicked out. Well, the truth is you're right. As I have said, you have sinned. You have no business being in the house of God. And your shame and your guilt is constantly reminding uh, you of that. The reason why you feel like a phony, the reason why you feel like an imposter, the reason why you feel like you could never end up in the house of God is because you actually do have a proper self-assessment of who you are. But you have a very low assessment of who Jesus is. The greater truth is that you couldn't be more wrong about whether you belong. You actually do belong in the house of God because Jesus has made it so. You can't prepare a place for you, but Jesus can prepare a place for you. You can't get in, but Jesus can get you in. You belong not because you belong, but because Jesus belongs and you are clothed in him. So you belong in the same level that he belongs in the Father's house and he belongs in the Father's house. When they interviewed uh, this Danny guy, they said, they said, you know, Okay, that's great. You acted confident. Somehow you pulled this off. But there had to be some, like, there had to be something else you did besides just acting like you belonged. And he said, well, of course I had to wear a suit. He said, I went to Walmart and bought a suit. He said, I couldn't have pulled that off in jeans and a t-shirt. They'd have known really quickly. There's a uniform to this thing, and you've got to be wearing a suit. They said, that's it? He said, yeah, that's it. You've just got to wear a suit. You can get in. The promise of the gospel is not just that Jesus has taken away your sin that keeps you out. He has clothed you with the righteousness that gets you in. His is free, by the way. He has clothed you with what you need to get into the Father's house. So let not your hearts be troubled. You belong in the house of God as much as the Son of God belongs in the house of God. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let me pray. Teach us, O oh God, that we belong. Teach us, O oh God, that you are coming, that you have prepared our place, that you are coming to take us to our place, and that we will forever be in your presence, which is, since the fall, our greatest longing. And may that truth and that promise transform our present troubled hearts. Lord, I don't know what is troubling the hearts in this room, but I know, Lord, that you are calling us to fixate instead on the promise of the Father's house that it would transform and change whatever is troubling our hearts. 
Lord, I pray that you would feed us now with the good news and promise that we belong. This is communion. This is for those who belong. Not because we belong, but because Jesus belongs and we are in Jesus. Because he says, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you. And then he says, and I'm coming back for you. I pray that truth proclaimed in this meal would overwhelm our troubled hearts this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.